Welcome to The Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast where we discuss all things compounding and all things concerning independent pharmacy. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Delicio, North American Sales Director, and Sebastian Dennison, Clinical Compounding Pharmacist. Welcome, Compounding World. This is Mike Delicio, host of the Mortar and Pestle podcast, a PCCA podcast, and I'm joined by Sebastian Dennison, as always. Hey, Seb, how's it going? Uh, it's a great day to be alive. Awesome. And this is going to be a really cool episode. Not only are you going to be here with your boss, um, but also with our vice president of clinical services, formerly our pharmacy consulting department, Mr. AJ Day. AJ, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, This is um, definitely well-timed. This is an episode that will focus mainly on the regulatory environment for compounding pharmacists, namely 503A pharmacies, those that specialize in compounding. And... um, It was a conversation that we probably have had more than once and decided that it was time to bring this topic to the forefront, mainly for the listeners of this podcast. So thanks so much for joining us. You've been part of our leadership team overseeing our clinical services department since 2010 and have had direct involvement from an an overall regulatory point of view, um, mainly with government and state boards specifically, but have had been engaged on more than one occasion. to have a voice, not only on behalf of compounders, but on behalf of PCCA. So I guess before we get into mainly the specifics about your involvement in this role, uh, talk to us a bit more and educate our listeners about your direct experience in this realm. Sure. So the regulatory environment that oversees compounding, as you mentioned, is on two fronts. There's the state board of pharmacy level, which is primary jurisdiction over the practice of pharmacy. And then you also have the the federal oversight. So in 2013, Congress passed and the president signed into law the Drug Quality Security Act, otherwise known as DQSA. So that went into law in November 2013. And once it's law, then it gets to the hands of the agency to implement the law. So FDA's implementation has been an ongoing process, and that's where we as a a compounding community, we as a company, and me individually have become much more involved with the agency on a federal level, as well as talking with members of Congress much more regularly about this because ultimately they're the ones who have oversight over the actions of the agency as they go through this implementation process. So... You asked a question about some of my involvement, and and of course, my involvement started on the state level. That's where we're licensed, that's where we're more familiar with the the people who oversee our profession, and so it was just only natural to become very involved with our state board of pharmacy here in the state of Texas. And over over the years, the need to be more involved on a federal level became more and more apparent, especially with the implementation of DQSA. So I've had the good fortune or misfortune, depending on how you look at it, of being present at all of the FDA's Pharmacy Compounding Advisory Committee meetings, otherwise known as PCAC meetings. Now, this is a group, this is an advisory committee that is required by statute, by federal statute, for the FDA to consult with for the creation of what's referred to in the industry as a positive list or what the FDA refers to as the list of bulk substances that can be used under Section 503A of the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. So putting together this this positive list, they are required to consult with an advisory committee. They have advisory committees on a lot of different topics, and it's an advisory committee. They're, they're free to take or ignore their advice, but uh, those meetings are public meetings. 
And so that was my introduction to working with the agency is through those meetings and presenting on behalf of the compounding industry, presenting on behalf of PCCA and oftentimes other organizations to defend why we feel we need to be able to compound with specific API. Well, sorry, sorry to jump in. APIs are, are a distinct molecule, and I know that there's specific rules to the utilization of these different products. Now, the positive lifts doesn't result doesn't uh, doesn't overlap with products that say have a USP monograph. Like when we're talking about the positive list, we're talking about exactly what AJ. All right. So this is a question that we're asked all the time in clinical services, as you know, Sebastian. So. Let's Before we talk about the positive list, let's back up and say, why is there a positive list? So what does the law say? So Section 503A of the Federal Food Drug Cosmetic Act says that, amongst other things, they give you parameters of the types of ingredients, specifically active ingredients, that you can utilize. So the compound can use bulk drug substances, which is FDA's and Congress's term for API, um, as long as the API complies with the standards of an applicable USPNF monograph, if a monograph exists, if a monograph does not exist, then you can still use an API if that API is included as an, as an API in an FDA-approved drug substance, or if neither of those two, then the FDA has to create a list. Right? So if you don't have a monograph and it's not an active ingredient in an FDA-approved product, that doesn't mean you can't do it. It means you have to look at this list that the FDA has to create. And we refer to that list as the positive list. It's the, the bulk drug substances list for Section 503A. But, and I'm, so all of this is a, is a paraphrasing of what the actual statute literal language says. Uh, if you want to read that full language, you're, we, we have a direct link to that from the PCCA members only website under our public affairs page. Uh, under resources, you can click to, to view the full text of 503A. Now, <clears throat> sorry, I've, I've gotten this question. So it has to qualify as all three of those, or is it a and statement, or is it an or statement? It must be a USP and commercial product and on this positive list, or is this a or statement? It's an or statement. Um, that's clear in the language of the statute. Um, FDA, uh, throughout their implementation process, has made it very clear that it's an or statement. So when you look at the positive list, it's not going to include anything that's in an FDA-approved product. There were, there were nominations for substances that were active ingredients in FDA-approved products, and the FDA identified those as such and declined to include those on the positive list because they don't meet the definition of what would go on the positive list. Same thing for things that have a USPNF monograph. They identified those nominations and said these don't meet the qualifications. They, they meet the first qualification, so you can use it. They don't thus qualify to be on the positive list. So if it has a USPNF monograph, it will not be on the list um, because it's already got the monograph. If it's component of an FDA-approved product, it's not going to be on the list because it already meets that that entry requirement. Now, I'll, I'll pause there for a moment because I said if it's got a USP monograph, it doesn't need to be on the list. There's a caveat to that, and this has to do with the implementation process. So if you remember what I stated, the, the actual statute reads as that the 
active ingredient has to comply with the standards of an applicable United States pharmacopoeia or national formulary monograph if one exists. In their implementation process, FDA has stated that their interpretation of what Congress intended is that the word applicable is really referring to what FDA considers drug monographs. And so if the monograph is in the subheading of USPNF for dietary supplements, those monographs don't count as applicable in the viewpoint of the FDA. So if there's a substance that is found within the USPNF and it has a monograph in the dietary supplement chapter, the FDA says that monograph doesn't count. You still have to nominate it for the positive list unless it's already part of an FDA-approved product. So an example of that would be something like? Um, coenzyme Q10 is a good example of that. So CoQ10 has a dietary supplement monograph, and there are patients who rely on it to be compounded for just medical functioning. And FDA said, well, that monograph doesn't count. So we had to nominate it to be on the positive list. And we nominated it. We, we got it on category one. So th there's a further discussion about how these lists are created and how they're subdivided. We'll talk about that in just a moment, I'm sure. But we got it nominated, put on category one. Then after some time, it was placed on an agenda for the PCAC to consider it. So once it got on their agenda, we were invited to go and speak and, and defend why we felt that coenzyme Q10 needed to be used as an active drug ingredient uh, in compounding under Section 503A. And the committee and the FDA had to vote on what they felt the, the evidence was and whether or not it should be available for compounding. And I can tell you that, yes, they did, they did see the need, both the committee as well as the agency, and so all the votes were in favor of allowing co coenzyme Q10 as an API on the 503A positive list. But, uh, sorry, this is just another question, because you, you talk about category one, category two, category three lists. This is where we are now, is that those lists we can see, they're published, but pretty soon they're going away. And we're going to be expecting to see a positive list? Right. So this brings us kind of to the, the sense of urgency for, for getting this information out. The statute talks about these items having to appear on, on this list that the FDA has to create, the bulk drug substances list or colloquially known as the positive list. The positive list doesn't exist, or historically it hasn't existed. And so in the interim... The FDA said, okay, we're going to publish some interim guidance on how we intend to enforce this entire process. That in, in the development of that interim guidance, they took all of the nominations for substances that industry uh, stakeholders had submitted for consideration, and they said, okay, we need to divide this stuff up. So there were thousands of items that were submitted. Not all of the items were submitted um, with the type of information that the FDA needed. So they created three lists and made these as part of their interim guidance. So category one, that first list, those are items that have been nominated and the nominations were considered sufficient for the FDA to make an evaluation. So in layman's terms, you gave the agency all of the information that they asked for. So when they ask about any you know, how do you intend to use this API? What kind of formulations, what kind of conditions do you intend to treat? What, what's the range of dosing 
and the routes of administration that you intend on using it in. Um, all of that type of information was sufficiently submitted to the FDA so that they could do their own evaluation. So those items went on category one. Category two, those are items that had been nominated with sufficient information. All of the evidence that they asked for was provided to them. However, the FDA has a concern about a significant safety issue with those substances, which would lead them to a concern for public health. So with category one, those things that were nominated with sufficient evidence, they did not have a significant safety concern. They will allow, they're, they're exercising enforcement discretion to allow 503A compounders to utilize those substances as API in their compounds while they're developing the final rule, which would be the positive list. So this interim policy means that all the stuff on category one, you can use that as an API. This is what the FDA has published. Category two, those are things that meet the requirements in terms of their submission and the ability for the FDA to, to make an evaluation. However, due to certain safety concerns, they are not exercising enforcement discretion, and so you cannot compound with those. Then category three, those are items where the nominations were not provided with sufficient evidence for the FDA to make an evaluation. So all of those details that the FDA asked for, the route of administration, the, the dosage range that you might compound it with, any literature to support the clinical need for it to be compounded, all those details, and whether it's some or all of them, were lacking. And so the FDA determined that they could not make a sufficient uh, evaluation on those substances. And they, they came back to the industry repeatedly and said, okay, we're not getting all of the information we're asking for. And we're also getting some information for things that may not necessarily be active drug ingredients, active pharmaceutical ingredients. So let's, clar let's clarify that our, our request is for API and we need all these details. And again, they received some, some of these substances to be nominated. And in the end, they said, okay, well, since we're not getting all of the information that we could actually do a thorough evaluation to make a determination on whether these substances would be appropriate or not, we're just gonna have to say you can't use them. So they put them on category three. So category three represents items that were uh, submitted with insufficient information without adequate support for the nomination. So the net result is that category two and three, you cannot compound items that appear on those lists. The reasons are different, but the net result is the same. Category one, those are items that you can use as API. You might see some things on category three, for example, that um, you utilize, but you're not utilizing them necessarily as an active pharmaceutical ingredient. So for example, stevia. Perfect example, that was the one I was gonna bring up. Right, so stevia is on category three, but you have to go back to what is category three, what is this entire interim guidance about? What it's about is bulk drug substances, which is the FDA's terminology, and if you look into their documentation, they actually define bulk drug substances. We're talking about API. So stevia is not used as an API in your formulations for the most part. Um, if it is, it's on category three, so you can't use it. But if it's there as an excipient, if it's there as a sweetening agent in your formulations, as is commonly utilized, then it can be used under Section 503A because the bulks list is not addressing excipients. 
It's really only addressing API. So I do have another question, but I think Mike had a question that he wanted to touch on earlier. Yeah, AJ, I think the um, where I was going with this too, I don't think we've ever started a podcast with so much information, obviously in the first 10, 15 minutes. My assumption is that some of our listeners are definitely not experts in this field and probably seek more information or potential guidance from someone like us within our clinical services team. Where do we direct people? I know you mentioned that there's a direct link uh, through public affairs on our PCCARX.com website. Is, are there any other tools or any other areas that people should be directed to to learn more besides the information that you just shared as well? Well, absolutely. And, and we receive a lot of questions from pharmacies around the country uh, looking for help in understanding this regulatory environment. And it's the, the mix. Everything we've been talking about is the federal side. It doesn't, we haven't even discussed all the nuances on the state side of regulating uh, compounding pharmacy. So PCCA members have ready access to contacting the clinical services team as well as the public affairs teams. You can do that through the members only website. You can call our 800 number and, and talk to one of our customer service reps and they can put in the, the request on your behalf. In addition, PCCA does host a public affairs phone call and our next scheduled phone call is on March 20th. Um, that date is a bit fortuitous as well because let's let's rewind a little bit to something else I was talking about, which is that this this final positive list, this bulk drug substances list doesn't exist. Well, it's about to exist, right? So FDA has published a final rule that goes into effect on March 21st, 2019. And in that final rule, they're not addressing everything that was nominated for the bulks list. They're not even addressing everything that was nominated under category one, that, that made its way onto category one. They're specifically addressing 10 substances that went through the process that were evaluated by the agency, that were on an agenda for the PCAC to consider, that the nominators went and, and had a presentation and a discussion within the, uh, the, the process of the public meeting at the PCAC, and FDA published a proposed final rule in 2016, and then now in February, February 19th of this year, they published a final rule making a decision on those 10 substances. So there's still many more substances that are going to be on category one, but you have a final rule now, and that goes into effect on March 21st. So the six substances that they are recommending to put on the, the final rule of the positive list for, for industry nomenclature terms are Brilliant Blue, Cantheridin, Diphenylcyclopropanone, Acetyl-D-Glucosamine, squaric acid dibutyl ester, otherwise known as dibutyl squarate, and thymol iodide. Now, cantheridin, diphenylcyclopropanone, otherwise known as DPCP, acetyl-D-glucosamine, squaric acid, and thymol iodide, all of those have a caveat of topical use. So they're not for just any, any route of administration. The route of administration on those is topical. In addition to those six, those are the six that they, they want to put on the final positive list. They are saying that four items are not going to be included on the list. Those four are oxytryptan, which is more commonly known as 5-HCP or 5-hydroxytryptophan, paracetam, silver protein mild, 
and Tranelast. So 10 items, six of them are going to be on the positive list, and four will not. There are many, many more that are on category one of their interim list, which are still to be determined. So now 503A compounders, after March 21st, will have multiple places to look at to determine what kind of API they can use in their formulations. So does it have a, an applicable, in FDA's terminology, USP NF monograph? Is it a component of an FDA-approved product? If neither of those two, then does it appear on this final list of drug substances that the FDA has evaluated and that would be those six items? And if it's not on there, then you still have to look at their interim guidance and look at category one. This begs the question then, I, I still want to use these items. Is there any way to get them in? I, I, I love Trenlast. It's like my favorite molecule for these patients with uh, mast cell destabilization, and I want to use it. Can I just use it as an excipient then? So that's a great question and one that we commonly field in the clinical services department. You know, we have a lot of people who are looking at different excipients that appear on category three, and so we walk them through why category three isn't talking about excipient uses, right? Like stevia. So stevia is commonly recognized as an excipient. I am not aware of any utilization of stevia as an active drug ingredient, right? The evaluation for tranolast was as an active drug ingredient. And that's where FDA said that they, they did not feel comfortable adding it to the list. What information, what scientifically valid information do you have to support the utilization of any of these ingredients, whether it's the four that they're declining to put on the list or others that are on category three, as excipients? So if you wanted to take tranolast and say, I'm going to use this as an excipient, the burden would be for you, assuming that, that somebody were to question you about it, an FDA investigator, a state board representative, a medical professional, were to question you about why tranolast is in that formula, and you would have to essentially defend its, its function as what? Is it there as an antioxidant? Is no, it there no, to stabilize a, your formulation? It's an inactive active. Can I get away with that? That's a big old no now, right? Correct. Uh, we, we really need to get out of this, this idea that um, we're going to find a loophole and that we can still be utilizing these things that are clearly stated and uh, enforceable under federal statute. So, no, we're not looking to find a loophole. We're not looking to, um, to s just hide something in our preparation. We are medical professionals. We are here for the benefit of our patients, and we must do that within the regulatory environment of both the state and federal oversight. What, what pops out to me and is something that will probably be a question from a lot of individuals is how oxytryptan, 5-hydroxytryptophan, made it to this list when it's freely available in many nutritional products. You know, this is exactly the conversation that was had and has been had many, many times at the PCAC meetings. So the committee Help. was asking, you know, to the FDA, you're telling us that it would be okay for anybody to go buy these nutritional products um, from somebody with no medical background at a typical retail outlet, yet a pharmacist who is receiving a patient-specific prescription from a licensed medical professional could not prepare this for an individualized patient. 
And the answer from the FDA was no, because their, their perspective is that pharmacists are not making dietary supplements. Pharmacists are making compounded drug products. So it's outside of the realm of expertise, or not necessarily expertise, but outside of the realm of their preparations. Scope of practice. Scope of practice, because dietary supplements are made under a GMP environment, and compounds are not, and the, the regulatory oversight of it are, is different. And part of that is also the claims that are made. Because FDA makes the, takes the position that if a prescription is, is written, it's to treat a specific disease or condition. And you cannot make specific uh, disease or condition claims associated with dietary supplements. So the question that, that we have posed directly to the agency is, assuming that we are all in agreement, which we're not, but assuming that we're all in agreement that the um, term applicable uh, dietary supplements in the statute does not apply to certain sections of USPNF. If we were in agreement about that, how do we still take care of our patients, bottom line? So in this case, <clears throat> what we're st for us, we can't even compound dietary supplements, which is a huge, huge piece of a patient group. But we can still make recommendations. We may even carry those as nutraceuticals in our in our vitamin section, but we have to stay away from compounding them. There's there it's the loophole is closed and that option is is gonna change our impact with patients um, in the sense of the the just even the the development of their of their care at the pharmacy level. The environment that we were able to operate under was not a loophole. The the rules allowed us to do what we needed to do in regards to uh, the utilization of dietary ingredients to support the healthcare needs of our patients. And we received prescriptions for those as compounding pharmacists and we would fulfill those individually. So we are in a situation where it's now much more challenging to provide those needed supplements for those patients who can't take the manufactured products. So. If a patient needs something in an alternative dosage form, whether it's a liquid or a lozenge or something else, um, the question remains of how can we, under the current regulatory environment, provide that to them? And that question is yet unanswered. We are working with the agency to, to find a solution, but we don't have an answer for it yet. I'm playing the devil's advocate in a lot of this conversation and, and asking these questions because there is so much subtlety and nuance to this entire discussion. We've talked about positive lists. We talked about um, nominated list, negative list. Yeah. So the negative list has has been around for quite some time. So um, for those not familiar with it, back in the late '90s, uh, Section 503A originally was passed. It was fought in the courts, made its way all the way to the Supreme Court, and it was struck down for um, because it had a unconstitutional restriction on free speech. However, in that version of the law, they did state that um, FDA had to create and maintain this list of drug products that were removed from the, they were withdrawn or removed from the market for reasons of safety or effectiveness. We, in the industry, commonly refer to that as the negative list. If something appears on that list, so again, it's been removed for reasons of safety or effectiveness, then we can not compound it, right? 
So the, the manufacturer, the sponsor of the, the new drug application with the FDA, they've pulled it. It's not on the, whether they voluntarily pulled it or it was, or it was um, removed by the FDA, it's not available. So those items cannot be compounded either. So there is a constantly updated list that is um, maintained by the agency, and um, there's a link to that from the public affairs website uh, under the PCCM members only site. And if something appears on that list, you, you don't compound it. Now, specifically, the, the list is created in, with two types of information. So specifically, the list identifies active drug ingredients, but then it also gives you some details about the conditions for its removal or withdrawn or, or what is limited. So for example, it might say that all drug products containing this ingredient cannot be uh, compounded. Um, it might say all oral drug products. It might say all drug products that contain X number of milligrams or more per dose cannot be compounded. So it's not always a blanket denial, but uh, it, it can be nuanced. But that is another resources that we as compounders have to check. And that, that language that re refers to this negative list is in the current language of Section 503A as well. So all of, of Section 503A and 503B, the Drug Quality Security Act in whole, applies to human medicine. So um, everything that we've talked about for the positive list, the interim lists, the um, needing to have a USPNF monograph, a component of an FDA-approved product, the negative list, all of that is specific to human medicine in the United States. So if you do have any questions about Canadian legislation, number one, NAPRA is the primary resource that we would talk to. You would look at all drug schedules and you can also reach out and contact our clinical services team. They have an understanding of Canadian law. Same in Australia, New Zealand, and other countries. We would always uh, respect the jurisdiction of the country that you're operating in, as well as the regulatory authority overseeing your pharmacy practice. What blows me away, AJ, is that not only the work that you put in on the back end and your involvement from a regulatory affairs point of view, but it's it's really about PCCA. So when there are pharmacies that are choosing access to APIs or bulk drug, as it's referred to very commonly, these are all things that we've taken into consideration, obviously protecting the world of compounding pharmacy as well, acknowledging that some of these products should not be compounded. Um, these are decisions and the tough decisions that our regulatory affairs department makes, our purchasing team makes, before we start providing both either formulations or access to the API specifically for compounded use. So I, I think for what our listeners need to gather from this is that we have essentially the oversight or the ability to impact what they are currently doing if they have products directly from us because we are taking that into consideration. There, I think a very big common question that we get as a company is, I am looking for a drug XYZ, why can't you provide it to me? It's freely available, other people sell it. That's a question that can essentially bother us as well because we know that certain products that appear on this list are available in the US market. And that doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do. I think we take it one step beyond that and we obviously vet this list according to the products that we bring in specifically to protect compounding pharmacy. 
can you share your thoughts on that statement alone? Because it's not only from a formulation and clinical services point of view, it's also from providing the API or bulk substance to that pharmacy. Yeah, Mike, you bring up some really good points. There are so many nuances of the regulatory scheme that we all are under. Um, Section 503A, that applies to the pharmacies, right? That doesn't apply to PCCA. It doesn't apply to your wholesaler. So the wholesaler can carry things, and they can sell it to you, and they may not have any ramifications if you get in trouble. Just because somebody can sell you a product does not mean that you can use the product as an active ingredient or, or whatever the purpose is. So you as a pharmacist ultimately have to do your own due diligence and understand the various aspects of the regulatory scheme to make sure that you're in compliance with your state board, with the FDA rules, and any other oversight. So if you're looking at accreditation bodies or others. So that's your responsibility, not your wholesalers. We do... Um, really extend ourselves to, to make sure that we are not putting our members in a position for failure or to jeopardize their license. That's that I'm a pharmacist. This company was founded by pharmacists. We aren't here to just sell a chemical. We want to make sure that we're positioning you for success. And that means innovation, supporting you in creativity, um, developing formulations that you need and, and research and development on new delivery systems for your patient needs, but also understanding the regulatory scheme and making decisions that may not help us financially, but they keep you out of trouble as a pharmacist. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of the way we've always approached our role in the marketplace. So there are, you know, we, we're, we have Tranelasts. After March 20th, um, because the, the final rule goes into effect March 21st. So I would suggest that those four items that the FDA is not including on the list, you want to have all of your prescriptions dispensed by March 20th. Because effective March 21st, they're no longer allowed, again, for human use. So does that mean that PCCA will no longer sell Tranolast? Well, no, it means that we have relabeled our Tranolast for vet use only because there are still a number of veterinary-appropriate applications for Tranolast. Um... We've also taken the step to go through our formulation database. And so by the deadline, we will, because we have to keep in mind the timing of all of this. Um, we don't want to change up our formulation database too early and leave your patients suffering in the interim. So we, we, the timing of, of all of these decisions and the implementation of it um, is, is very important to us as well. So by the 20th, we will start in, uh, inactivating certain formulas. Um, we have been developing other formulas with alternative mast cell stabilizers that may be appropriate for your patients. Um, and if you've got questions about, you know, how do I transition my patients who have been on a particular regimen that involves tranolast, call us. That's what we're here for. We've always been here to make sure that we are supporting your access to patient needs so that we can be an extension of your staff and, and really help facilitate your access to information, to formulations, to on-the-fly adjustments because the patient that's in front of you today may present with something that's you know, not exactly the same as the patient you did something customized for yesterday. So you're right. You know, Throughout our entire supply chain, the decisions that we make on where we buy from, but what chemicals we're going we're gonna to source and we're going to inventory and how we're going to qualify those. Um, 
above and beyond what's in USP, because it's not just about the chemical and saying, well, it meets the spec by USP. We have, we have to make sure that it meets the needs of the formulation so that it can actually have the clinical outcome and your patient can get better. You know, we are always happy to be a resource to our member pharmacists. Um, we are not lawyers. We don't provide legal advice. Um, we do um, offer our understanding and, and the ability to walk through the regulatory uh, scope. And I don't want to get sidetracked by making this statement. We, we've seen pharmacies that have recently joined our membership and are now part of our membership as a direct result of listening to the podcast. We talk about a lot of our R&D, our innovation, formulation support, our clinical services team, which is obviously the most vast in the industry, and our marketing assistants, et cetera, et cetera. And I can go on and on, but I don't think it's ever been truly obvious or pointed out that we are an extension of their staff also from a regulatory point of view to hold their hand throughout this process so they don't do something incorrectly. And it's such a big part of pharmacy, but something that we never really put out in writing, uh, but it is a huge, huge part of clinical services as a whole. And like you said, not only from a formulation point of view, but through supply chain. So I think to listeners out there that are on the verge of getting into compounding, those that have dabbled for years and focus on the fact that they want to grow their business. Like I said, for the, for the sake of not getting sidetracked by making this statement, this is a great example or a great area to learn more and also lean on us so that you have the confidence that, as AJ said, the company was founded by pharmacists. We, that mindset, that, that core belief is executed on a daily basis, and it's really, really cool to see that there's other aspects of membership that are available to you. And if you are listening as a, as a pharmacy who is not a member of PCCA, this is something that you can definitely speak to us more about. And then, like I said, I do not want to get sidetracked. I know the, the timing of the recording of this podcast was truly to talk about what was imminent um, with a late March release date on behalf of the FDA. So with that being said, AJ, with the announcement shortly coming up, is there anything else that we need to prepare our member pharmacies for, or for all compounding pharmacies for that matter, as to what what the next steps are. Sure. So we have a number of ways to assist PCCA members with staying up to date with all of this, these rapid changes in the industry. One of them is obviously 24-7 access to our team. Our team is, is very aware and knowledgeable in these various issues, so you have the ability to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with us um, as you need it. You also have information at your fingertips, so our website is designed to be a tremendous resource so that you don't have to um, have a conversation with somebody. You can be you know, hanging out on your, on your laptop wherever you are in the world and, and just find the information that you need. So the PCCA members only website, the public affairs website, we have a lot of tools that are in there so that you don't have to wait for anybody else to provide you guidance, but you can actually read it for yourself and, and experience that um, education for yourself. We also have a lot of uh, regulatory updates that we provide in our conferences. So all the different educational events that PCCA hosts throughout the year around the country, we include at least a few minutes of regulatory information um, on one of the days of these conferences because, again, it's important that everybody is, is aware of 
all the things that are constantly evolving on the regulatory front. And then we also have our annual Action Commitment Time, or ACT, initiative. This is PCCA's fly-in to Washington, D.C., where we go and we meet with lobbyists. I cannot encourage you guys enough to get out there. You are constituents. When we talk about pharma and all these other interests um, that are that are available, um, they're not necessarily the constituents of all those 435 members of the House of Representatives and all those 100 senators. You are their constituents. The pharmacists and your staff have a voice. And if your voice isn't heard, we need to get you involved more to make sure that your voice is heard. So there's ACT, then there are other in industry initiatives that are similar to ACT. So Compounders in Capitol Hill, which is hosted by International Academy of Compounding Pharmacists, as well as NCPA, National Community Pharmacy Association, they have their own congressional fly-in. This year, PCCA's ACT and NCPA's congressional fly-in do have some overlap, but I would highly encourage you to get to ACT, and if you're not able to, get to CCH and get to, get to the NCPA fly-in. I mean, these are all very important for making your voice and your perspective part of the discussion on how these decisions are made, how the laws are passed, how the laws are implemented. We have a clinical services team and we are all greatly aware of what's happening. So you can talk to any one of our clinical services team. What if they want to talk to you directly? How do, how do our members get a hold of you if they have a very nuanced question that maybe someone is, is asking a, a bigger question? Maybe they've got an inspection coming and they have some really tough questions and, they, and they're just not getting the answers they're looking for. How do they get a hold of you or is there any, anywhere else that they can turn? So members can reach me the same way they can reach you. It's through the uh, members-only website or our customer service team. They put in a, a question for clinical services. They can specifically request me. I'm in a lot of meetings, and just to make sure that we get back to our customers in a timely manner, somebody else on our team might be the person making the actual phone call back to the customer. However, I'm always available to, to have the discussion. It's just uh, sometimes an issue of timing. And... Um, in addition, we've got our, our public affairs resources. So the clinical services team is obviously a first-line resource for many of our members, but our public affairs team as well. Um, the PCCA public affairs call, again, the next one is on March 20th. Every call has time for questions and answers. So that's another opportunity to have a live discussion with our public affairs team. So that's Amy Shank, Matt Martin, myself, Lizzie Harbin. So we're all available to, to answer questions live on air for, for people who dial in as well. Now, I've, I've heard a lot about these lists. Where do I find these lists? You, you mentioned the link. Where do we find that link again? It's on the public affairs website, which can be found if you are on the PCCA members only website and you scroll all the way to the bottom. It's on the bottom left uh, of, the, of the website. There's a link to public affairs. And then they can access it there. Correct. Fantastic. One last question for you. If I want to become more involved in this process, because there's uh, nominations, there's a lot more involved with this. Is there any path for our membership to have any input or become involved in this? Absolutely. The nominations that FDA has been considering, those were all nominated by the stakeholders. That doesn't mean it was all nominated by PCCA or IACP. While we may have, have submitted many nominations on behalf of the industry, it's open to anybody. It's a public process. And so I would highly encourage members who are interested in nominating substances to explore that through the FDA's website. 
If you'd like to discuss it with our team who has experience going through the process, we're happy to do so. Uh, the two people who probably have the most experience with that are Matt Martin and myself. And we're happy to, and I've, we've got a lot of experience assisting members navigating that process. So we're, the nomination process is not over with by any means. It's not to, we don't want this to seem like what you see on those category one, two, and three lists, those are just set in stone and, and it, the FDA is just going to work their way through it and the process is going to be over. It is a ongoing process. And so if there are specific items that you would like to nominate, if you have specific data on an, an ingredient such as tranolast or 5-hydroxytryptophan where you feel it should be renominated for reconsideration, give us a call. Let's talk about it. Let's figure out what the data is and, and how to best proceed. AJ, personally, I want to say thank you for taking the time in your office and explaining this to me. One of the main reasons that I wanted to bring you into this is because I'm getting a ton of phone calls. I've been really fortunate that I've had access to you directly to to bring me up to speed. I felt it was such a germane conversation to, to bring to the table. So thank you personally for taking the time to, to educate myself and all of our listeners. Yeah, it, it, honestly, AJ, I think this was a topic that obviously needed to be addressed. Um, most importantly, a lot of the individuals out there don't necessarily see our involvement backstage. Um, and the work that, that we put in, both from a government point of view and from overall public affairs and our direct involvement with the PCAT committee specifically. So I think it gives our listeners a much better impression in terms of how PCCA is involved, how you, AJ Day, is specifically involved in a lot of these initiatives, and not only in your role specifically from the formulation point of view, but, but truly overall clinical and patient outcome um, and what it means for pharmacies to compound. So thanks so much for all the work that you put in. Um, it's also a true testament of, of what we are in the whole compounding realm and how we try to still help out and assist on the back end. So thanks for all your involvement. Well, I'm grateful to have been here. Um, I, I'm a big fan of the podcast, so thanks for inviting me. We will bring you back. Um, I know that most of our listeners will probably want to stay more engaged and learn more about our clinical services department from a formulation perspective, and I think that'll be a great topic or something else that we can definitely dive into in the near future. But I know this was obviously pressure and time sensitive, and we wanted to get this information out as soon as possible. So thanks so much for doing it. Yeah, well, we have a, a phenomenal support team to, to make all of this happen. Um, none of us is an island and, and um, just grateful for the team that we have assembled here and the dedication that they all have to making sure that ultimately patient health is progressing. Great final statement. Thank you for all of our listeners out there who have tuned into this episode. As a quick reminder, please visit us at www.pccarx.com where you can find more information, not necessarily about membership, but always a reminder to please subscribe to our blog, um, which is a te technically a weekly newsletter to keep you more informed as to what is going on in the world of compounding. But secondly, please subscribe to this podcast as you do not want to miss an episode. Until next time, this is Mike Delisio and we'll talk to you soon.